Welcome to Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture, hosted by me, Alexandria Miller. Strictly Facts teaches the history, politics, and activism of the Caribbean and connects these themes to contemporary music and popular culture. Welcome, Strictly Facts fam. As promised, we're back with part two of this segment on Cuba's independence movement. As I shared two weeks ago, there is a particular narrative of the early independence movement that valorizes the leadership of wealthy enslavers in Cuba, negating the contributions of Afro-Cubans and their descendants in the island's revolution. In this episode, Marley Polido of the multilingual digital archive Historia Negra de Cuba joins us to discuss Black Cuban historical memory on the island. Marley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Of course. Why don't we start with a little bit about you and what inspired you to document and explore Black Cuban history? Uh, so I'm a historian. I'm a community organizer. I'm also an archivist. As you said, curating Historia Nera Cuba, this multilingual digital archive, but also a multimedia creative space to preserve the Black Cuban history of the island, but also the diaspora. I grew up in this magical town in Havana called El Cerro. El Cerro is full of, oh my God, so much history and magic. Uh, you see uh, these buildings along the Calzada del Cerro, which is you know one of the main roads. Uh, you see colonial decadence because El Cerro in the early 1800s was that town where rich white Cubans would move to to build you know bigger houses uh, because all Havana was a little crowded. El Cerro is also historically Black, poor, and working class town. Alongside that decadence that we see in Calzada del Cerro, we have all these neighborhoods that give El Cerro el sabor, that, that flavor, and the cultural relevance it has when we talk about Black human history of Havana, but also, you know, the island in general. And so while researching my family history a few years back, I found out that I am at least sixth generation from El Cerro. My roots here are really, really deep. And in 2018, I get a call from my family in Cuba that my grandpa had cancer. And this was huh, the biggest reality check of my life. I was like, I guess my grandparents are not going to live forever. Let's see how we get through this. The following months after you know this news were at least for me because I live abroad to create memories with my grandparents. I think that was also the historian in me that wanted to you know, save some memories. So on one of my trips to Havana, I brought a camera, a mic, and a laptop, and decided to sit my grandparents down for an interview about their lives. We had already had conversations about you know, family history, but these conversations were usually gossip sessions over cafecito, over a cup of coffee, but this time we really took time to, you know, sit down and have an actual interview. And, oh my God, uh, what a wholesome time. What an amazing time. I don't want to cry when this part, but it was just so beautiful uh, because they told me stories about when they were kids. I saw my grandpa tear up because of that time that, you know, almost 80 years ago, his family was evicted and he was helping his parents you know, pack up their stuff. Uh, I also saw them fight because, of, you know, someone resolved issues they have from their past. It was just beautiful to see 
my grandparents, you know, remember their history, but also I felt like they just didn't want to be forgotten. So after the interview, I, we went to my grandparents' house to see old pictures, you know, as a follow-up to this conversation we had had. And my grandma showed me a picture that truly caught my attention uh, because I saw this very old lady that I had never seen at any of the family gatherings when I was a kid. And I was like, like, who's this person? Like, who is she? Is she related to us? And my grandma was like, oh, yeah, that's Abuela Margarita. Abuela Margarita was my grandmother's grandmother. And Abuela Margarita's mom was enslaved at the house she grew up in. So seeing Margarita made me feel very grounded. I was like, oh, wow, I have history beyond, you know, my grandparents' generation. But it was also so grounding to see my grandparent, my grandma, especially, talk about her own grandmother and talk about enslavement. Like it was very recent history because for her it was. It was her own grandma, the grandma she grew up with. So in trying to, you know, like find and understand myself and where I come from, I got interested in archiving my own family history and preserving it. And in that journey, I decided that we were in need to have a digital archive to preserve Black human history of the island and not just, you know, like family stories, but also very individual stories that are also important to us. So Historia Negra Cuba is an extremely personal project for me. As you were talking, I was just like, the stories of who we are and where we come from are always just so integral to how we evolve, right? Especially oftentimes people spin slavery as this thing that was oh my gosh, it was so far ago, right? Mm -hmm. As you're saying, right? It was your grandmother's grandmother that wasn't that many years ago. Yeah, um, yeah. And so that, I mean, really ultimately brings us to our conversation today. But just, I was really struck by your story and really wanting to reiterate for our listeners that, you know, there's a reason why sometimes these themes in our histories keep coming up because they weren't that mm -hmm. long ago. It wasn't a thousand years ago, right? You know, maybe what, five, six generations. So yeah. not that many. Yeah. Jumping right into our episode, as I mentioned last time, um, names like Carlos Manuel Cepedes or Jose Marti, um, which tend to be, I think, more prominent names when people think of this movement in time in Cuban history and nationalism. However, as I alluded to, Afro-Cubans have always been um, and always played a significant part in Cuba's liberation. So could you speak briefly about this early involvement and how enslaved Africans and Afro-Cubans played a part in the island's rebellion against Spain? What a good question. Uh, I think that you know, like what sometimes people forget is that Cuban history is nothing without the history of people who were enslaved on the island. And I'm talking about, you know, Black Cubans, but I'm also talking about people from China who were enslaved on the island. So Cuba is an extremely nationalist country. And I say it not necessarily like in a bad way, because when you live on an island, it's really easy to uh, to decide who belongs because you have, you know, like geographic limits. You're in the middle of the water. So everybody that's inside is supposed to belong. But when writing and when teaching and when researching Cuban history, not everybody belongs the same way. 
So in, you know, Cuba's nationalist movements and movements, you know, to fight for independence, the enslaved wasn't always fighting against, you know, Spain as the colonizer. They were fighting against Spain as their very personal oppressors because, you know, the Spaniards had all these Black people enslaved. So the fight that Black people were, that, that the enslaved rather was fighting wasn't necessarily or wasn't always the fight that, you know, people like Carlos Manuel de Céspedes or Jose Martí were fighting because they're not, you know, in equal conditions. And in Cuba, we also have this narrative that we learn in school. There's like one specific sentence that we learned. It's one revolutionary process from Carlos Manuel de Céspedes to Fidel Castro. So we have 1868 to 1959, so like almost an entire century that the only people that we learn about or that they highlight in school are, you know, white men. And the movement for independence was nothing without all the rebellions enslaved Africans led. I think in the U.S. this is a lot more relevant than in Cuba, and I don't really know why, but the Amistad Rebellion, you know, the ship that enslaved Africans were being trafficked from Havana to Puerto Principe, which is another city in Cuba. They took over the ship. They killed the captain. They took control of the ship and were trying to free themselves. This we don't really learn in school. So we have this, you know, rebellion in 1839. But before that one, we had the rebellion that Aponte had led in 1810. And then in 1843, we had Carlota and Fermina, uh, where two, you know, Black women who also led a rebellion of enslaved people to fight against the oppression of their own bodies. And, you know, after the War of Independence started in 1868, we had the Maceo Grajales family, which is also, you know, a Black family that was extremely important uh, in the fight for independence. We had Quintin Banderas, we have a lot of people, but there's also like this filter that passes down in our history of who gets to decide what makes the cut as national history and what doesn't. Then emancipation came in 1886. Uh, but before emancipation, Black Cubans were the majority of the Mambisao. The Mambisao were, you know, the soldiers fighting against the Spanish colonization. So our participation, the Black Cuban participation in the war independence as a nationalist movement, but also as a movement that was looking to get rid of, you know, enslavement, we were crucial. Without us, we wouldn't have independence. So just elaborating on the framing um, to give context from the previous episode. So the 10 years war occurs ending in 1878. Um, Spain liberates some Africans, not all of them, the ones who were fighting on their side, but slavery continued until October 1886, as you said. And so one thing that I've found very interesting is the fact that like this sort of story of emancipation and how it comes about um, isn't really told. So can you describe the events surrounding emancipation and what were the racial issues that even persisted in Cuba after the fact? Yeah, the Declaration of Emancipation was signed on October 7th, 1886. We are celebrating. 136 years since all the Black people who were enslaved on the island were were freed. 
and I'm talking about, you know, between like 26,000 to 200,000 people were free. But the thing is that Cuba was the last colony of the Spanish empire to abolish enslavement. And it was mostly the Western part of the island that did not want to get rid of enslavement because they really relied on enslaved labor to, you know, have the booming economy that Cuba had as a colony. And the queen signed on October 7, 1886, and Black Cubans rejoiced. Uh, there was like, this beautiful parade on January 3rd, 1887. It was supposed to be on January 1st, but then it rained and they postponed it to January 3rd. And it was just like a beautiful thing that people were celebrating, that all Black people were celebrating that our people are not enslaved anymore. And this is a story that that's very community oriented unless you are you know fighting in solidarity with you know all black people this is a story that's very personal to black Cubans. the thing is that we don't learn this in schools and then from the diaspora too we have people in exile like rafael serra this is a black cuban in new york city who like during enslavement and even after emancipation he was thinking about what's going to be the future of us as people who were enslaved, as people who are just recently, you know, freed from enslavement, what's going to happen when we finally gain independence from Spain? Are we going to, you know, continue having the economic, you know, challenges that we face as a community because we were just enslaved? Or are we going to be able to be independent? So Rafael Serra founded La Liga de Instrucción y Recreo, and this was a night school and mutual aid society to help Black Cubans and Black Puerto Ricans too in New York City be you know, more politically knowledgeable, to be ready for when we're independent, we need to be active, we need to be politically active, so we're not being left behind. Rafael Serra was also one of the people who helped found the Partido Independientes de Color. Uh, Partido Independientes de Color in U.S. terms will be like a political party that will be for independence. So not necessarily, you know, like left or right, uh, but only for people of color. And they were saying, hey, like, we're going to be independent because we don't want to, you know, fall into the political manipulation that people on the left and people on the right, they're going to be using Black people as political pawns. So neither of them are showing that they understand our struggle. So we need to be, you know, independent. And this was founded, I think, like early 1900s. Uh, Cuba gained independence from Spain in 1898, then had a you know, military occupation by the United States until 1902. And then 1902, Cuba became an independent republic. So we have all this like really big stuff happening, emancipation, war of independence, and then like military occupation and like fighting to be a republic, all of this is happening in like only like a few years. And as often happens in Cuban history, the specific needs of, you know, black Cubans were relegated to, oh no, this is not a priority right now. The priority is to, you know, gain independence from Spain or the priority is to build a republic for everyone, not only for black people. So we also have, you know, the fact that the Cuban government, you know, the new republic in 1902, or after emancipation, Black people were not paid reparations. 
but the enslaver, you know, they did get money because black people were property. And we have all this all this stuff happening. And we also have, you know, like the need for women to also be honored and celebrated because they were also an, an extremely important part of, you know, like this struggle for independence and this struggle for, for freedom, really. It was like 1898 uh, that there was an entire army of, or a battalion of Black women fighting against the Spaniards. And Rafael Serra would talk about how like there's no freedom if we don't have justice. We cannot have unity if we don't have justice. Today, activists would say no justice, no peace. And I think that back then, uh, Black people were being asked to, you know, just like rile up after, you know, the idea that we need independence from Spain. And Rafael said, I was saying, yes, we need that. We need unity. But if there's no justice, we cannot get to this point. Um, and then in the early 1900s, we also have Martin Morua, who knew Rafael Serra because he was also Black and he also lived in exile. Uh, he was the first Black Cuban president of the Senate uh, after Cuba became an independent republic. But he was also plotting to introduce the Morua Amendment, a resolution that would make any political party on the basis of race illegal. With this, you know, like there was a lot of you know fighting in the Cuban Senate because it was just like wild that a black man was throwing black Cubans under the bus when there was already a lot of activism to you know like be independent from the political left and the political right in Cuba and uh, only uh, a few years after emancipation the Cuban government led a massacre against Black Cubans. So I think it was like between 3,000 and 6,000 Black Cubans were massacred because we're demanding political rights on the island. So we're starting off as a new republic, killing Black people. So I might be speculating with this, but I think that after the massacre, there was like even with the Moru Amendment, there was like an intentional need to silence the Black Cuban struggle for justice because this would, you know, like delegitimize the Black Cuban nationalism. Uh, because Cubans then, after independence, were fighting against US imperialism because the US were like, you know, controlling the island because they had deep economic interests. But with this silencing of Black Cuban struggle for justice, we have a false sense of unity because we cannot be unified if we're not letting Black people also lead and also demand things that affect Black people and Black people only. That brings me to a really interesting point in terms of like holidays and how we um, sort of memorialize these histories in our nations, right? And so ironically, I found and this is opposite, particularly of the Anglophone Caribbean um, in early August that celebrates Emancipation Day, right? Every year it's a big holiday. But Cuba doesn't celebrate Emancipation Day as an official holiday in addition to Independence Day. So a little bit more speculation um, on your half, but why do you think that is? I think that it's just, you know, pure anti-Blackness. And... Yes, it is correct that we don't celebrate it. And also Cuban political holidays 
they changed after uh, Fidel Castro in 1959. So before 1959, there were, you know, different political holidays like Independence Day was uh, May 20th. But also May 20th is the same day that 3,000 to 6,000 Black Cubans were massacred. Uh, so this celebration, it's always weird for me. And um, I think that what happens in Cuba is not only not acknowledging or not celebrating emancipation, it's sweeping anti-Blackness under the rug because we need to uplift nationalism and an extremely intentional whitewashing of history. In my research, you know, like learning more about Black human history because I myself, I am constantly learning because there's so much history that because it's not being taught in schools, I don't have access to it. People who are not intentionally looking for it won't have access to it. I found out not long ago that Emancipation Day was October 7th, 1886, but the day that the current Cuban government acknowledges uh, emancipation is October 10th of 1868, because that's when Carlos Manuel de Céspedes, you know, like there's a whole myth around it. Like this, you know, like white man who had people enslaved, uh, or he's considered the father of the homeland. He invited the black people he had enslaved to fight for Cuba's independence. And if they joined him, they will be, you know, freed. So there's like this whole myth that it's just like difficult to process when you, you know, like sit down for a second and think about how the enslaver is sacrificing black people for an ideal that doesn't necessarily will provide freedom for them. So October 7th, which is when the Emancipation Declaration was signed, is not known. Uh, very few activists know about this day. Uh, very few people know about it. And I am trying to revive it because it means so much to Black history. It doesn't need to mean anything to Cuban nationalism. But that was the day when everybody was, you know, legally free, especially since Cuba was the last, you know, Spanish colony to free all the people they had enslaved. A point you keep coming back to, which is also something I'm very passionate about, is how these stories get told in schools, right? And so I think I've said it on the podcast before, just how like mortified I was in college learning certain things about like even civil rights history, right? You think about, we're talking about the 19th century in this episode, but there were things in college that I learned about like the 1950s and 60s in the U.S. that was completely not what was taught to me from, you know, elementary school onward. And so, I mean, we could just have a dialogue about this really, but how is that Black Cuban history um, sort of shaped in Cuba and in the diaspora? But what are really, are you seeing are the consequences of this sort of underdevelopment and not even just an underdevelopment, but sort of like intentional skewing, right? About yeah. the voices of Black people in our history? So I remember that enslavement will be taught in schools as this, you know, very bad things that Europeans did, but it was just like extremely simplified. And at home, you also learned that uh, Black history is also the mythical part of it, uh, all the religions, all the 
uh, the spirituality that, you know, like we all practice at home and, you know, very private settings. And we move between the mythical and the stereotypical of blackness, but we don't go deep into like, what is it that, you know, black people really went through on the island? What is it that people who were enslaved went through? And even the massacre, we don't learn about the massacre in schools. And even, you know, like the simplification of the history, I think that biggest consequences are because we're not talking about, you know, the enslaved or black Cubans. We're not, we're not calling their names. We're not inviting their names into our history. We're just forgetting their story. So I think that the older part of this is that we have this call to war and violence in the name of national independence that the stories that we highlight or uh, the journeys that we highlight in Cuban history, they need to be important for you know the revolutionary movements that we have had or they don't matter. So, and it's what I have mentioned before that we have this unique one revolutionary process from 1868 to 1959. So if black Cuban stories don't fit into this narrative that, that we have white men saving us throughout history, then it's not something that we should be teaching in schools. And yeah, so I am just extremely thankful that there's so many activists and so many, you know, academics to bringing Black Cuban stories back into, you know, the public spaces, let's say. I agree with that. I think revolutionizing not only the education itself, but where education takes place, right? If we can't necessarily rely on the schools to be doing this work that we're yeah. talking about, um, learning is not just, you know, you sitting in a classroom at your desk with this teacher and 30 or how many ever other people you can do this on a podcast like strictly facts you could do this yes. you know in in various shapes and forms and so I definitely agree that as we are you know unearthing these um understandings of who we are where we come from and transforming where education takes place and also I think that's especially for not just black people but people of color marginalized communities etc and that's not to say that we haven't done it, right? We've always done it through various religious practices and, you know, mm -hmm. different cultural things, but the need for us to create our own ways of learning and um, historical memory independently is, I think, so integral to how we continue to shape these legacies ultimately. Yeah. And if, we're, if we don't, you know, you know, Sankofa, we need to keep going back right, to our history right. to to understand who we are and what's the, what's the future ahead of us. Beautiful. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty. I am known for this question uh, because I'm always trying to find a new novel or something to, for me to read um, as follow-ups for these episodes. But what are some of your favorite examples of how this, um, you know, Black Afro-Cuban history shows up in books, movies, whatever, popular culture on a whole? Mm. My favorite thing, um, let me see. So I love Celia Cruz. I feel like everybody loves Celia. 
So this might be I do too. something that <laughs> this might be something that the listeners would like. Mm. And we know Celia, uh, you know, as the queen of salsa. But oh, before God. Celia, yeah, <laughs> before she was the queen of salsa, Celia was making history in Cuba, uh, recording the first ever album of Afro-Cuban religious and spiritual chants and songs. So Look Up Santero by Celia Cruz and Mercedes Valdez. Uh, this was recorded in, I think, 1940s. I don't remember the year exactly, uh, or early 50s. And Celia Cruz has two songs, Chango and Babaluaye, and these are, you know, chants to, to the Orishas, to the deities. And it is extremely grounding for me to just like know the history that Celia Cruz was, you know, making history, recording this for the very first time ever in an island that, you know, has so much like spiritual and, and religious, traditionally black uh, stories. Just like knowing the context, it gives me a lot of energy and makes me feel good about my, my lineage. Oyago, stay tuned for Strictly Fact Sounds, where we connect our history to pop culture. Given our focus on Black life, independence, and emancipation in Cuba, I thought two great additions to this episode are two autobiographies by Afro-Cubans Juan Francisco Manzana and Esteban Mesa Montejo. Born in 1797, Mansana recalls his experiences before the revolution in his book, The Autobiography of a Slave, while, born roughly 60 years later, Montejo's book, The Autobiography of a Runaway Slave, traces his experiences around the time as a cimarron, otherwise known as a maroon, and as a soldier as well in the 1898 War of Independence. Both narratives have helped tremendously to detail Afro-Cuban history and are important reads if you're looking to learn more about pre- and early independence Cuba. Check them out now. Well, I'll be sure to find it and link it um, for our listeners. I'm also excited to listen to because I had no idea. And as much as I've listened to her music, I actually haven't (laughs) heard those before. (laughs) Wow. Well, yes, I'll definitely find it and link it for everybody to follow up with after this episode. But all in all, Marley, thank you so much for joining us. This was so great. I'll also be sure to um, tag Historia Negra de Cuba in our show notes. So um, feel free to follow and check out the website. But again, thank you so much, Marley. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, of course. Thank you to our listeners. Um, I'm linking everything. So don't worry. Uh, You'll be able to find it there. But we hope you enjoyed this episode. Little more. Thanks for tuning in to Strictly Facts. Visit strictlyfactspodcast.com for more information from each episode. Follow us at Strictly Facts Pod on Instagram and Facebook and at Strictly Facts PD on Twitter.